This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and welcome to The Loop. This week on the show, we're mixing it up a little. It's spring break for some, a long weekend for others. Uh, we're celebrating the warmer weather. But we're also thinking about the fact that it's been basically a year and a month of living in a pandemic. And over that stretch, everything has changed, including how we feel about time. So this week, we're bringing you a special cut of a CBC show called It's About Time. Tori Kutcher is a science columnist here at CBC and also a professor in Edmonton. And just over a year ago, she was working on this special holiday program about time. I was actually working with her on it. And then everything changed. So after all that, Torah has returned to the subject of time and what this last year has meant and how we connect with it, relate to it, and how we're using it. And so I called up Torah to reminisce. Hey, Torah. Hi, Claire. So uh, about a year and a month ago, I was behind the counter at a Tim Hortons in Edmonton learning about how their drive through worked. About a year and a month ago, where were you? I was think busy working on the show. <laughs> I was running my kids around. I was running to work. I was back and forth from the U of A. I was just all over the place, you know, and it was, things were really, really hectic. And then all of a sudden what they do, right? They slowed right down. Yes. And the Tim Hortons drive through got busier, <laughs> but everyone else stopped. <laughs> yeah, it might be the one place. I mean, I wouldn't be on the inside of the glass this time, but in a way it's crazy because this last year has made time feel a little bit more surreal. Things change so much so quickly. I mean, we're measuring things in waves or how long we've actually seen people. How has the past year felt for you time-wise? It's definitely been a trip because I generally push to the very second of productivity. Right. That's kind of how my world has always been run. And then to have that full stop, you know, we were the ones also like, ordering on Amazon for adult coloring books because I have two st older stepdaughters and I was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> we normally have four basketball teams going between the two girls. I've got my youngest in uh, gymnastics and climbing and badminton and I've just got her in everything. And all of a sudden with all those gone, it was really hard to really think about how am I going to fill my day? And then... I got used to it, <laughs> really used to it. Yeah. We got a really good rhythm going in the house. And then as we started to add things back, right, things started to open up and yep. some of the lessons are available. And all of a sudden now the idea of like leaving the house in the evening is stressful to me. All of a sudden that time frame of like, oh my God, I have, to, I have something to do at seven. I have something to do at seven. Where it used to be so natural. Yeah, you're not I'm used to it. Actually, re-entry is harder. Yeah. I mean, what did it feel like returning to working on a show that's focusing all about time a year after you started it and a year where so much has changed? It was hard. It was hard to think about some of the interviews that we had done prior and how to shape it. One of the things that we had as a theme as a thread was kind of documenting my day, right? Like I recorded myself all day being like, okay, Tate, let's go. We're in a hurry. Come on. We're going to be late for school. Let's go. Everything is time for a bed. It's time to brush your teeth. And that's a regular soundtrack to many parents' day. Yeah. So all of a sudden we were looking, listening back to some of that tape and going, it doesn't work anymore. That doesn't sound like the soundtrack of our day anymore. It's from a different world. Yeah. So I had to really think about, and it really shifted thinking about this again, where originally we hadn't planned a lot about the psychology of time, 
how we perceive time. But all of a sudden, everyone was thrown in the same boat and we went, okay, we have to start talking to people like Alison Holman. She's a professor of nursing and she studies how people have this psychological perception of time, especially around hospitals and about healthcare. It was absolutely fascinating. It was just to sort of think about time from a more psychological perspective, because we all went through this psychological, just gymnastics yeah. to adjust to the new world. And it's something we hadn't co- we hadn't thought to cover before. The all too common blistering pace of our day is set by our clocks. The ticking and talking that tells us, kids need to be dropped off. Kids need to be picked up. Get to that meeting. Oh no, I'm late. Again. Time is the dictator of our day. Welcome to It's About Time, an hour-long holiday show dedicating a precious 51 and a half minutes, or 3,090 seconds, on the science of time. I'm your host, Tora Kachur, CBC Radio 1 National Science Columnist and Biology Prof at the University of Alberta. Today we'll find out if time even exists, and if it does, what it means for our relationships, our health, and our success in life. To a physicist, the existence of time may be more of a convenience than a necessity. Priyamvada Natarajan is a professor in the departments of astronomy and physics at Yale University. Hello, Priya. Hi. What is time from a physics perspective? Oh, gosh. Okay, that's a pretty deep question, so... (laughs) try to answer it best as I can. Time is a very convenient marker that helps you measure change in physical equations. It is arbitrary in the sense that, you know, we've kind of set our clocks to be t equals zero. The clock starts at the Big Bang. And so we've measured sort of the time elapsed since that event And that's what gives us time, as one imagines, for our equations, for our lives to manipulate as a parameter. So it really shows up in a fundamental way in many equations, but not all equations, when we are trying to understand how systems change and how they evolve. Now, you mentioned it's not necessary in all equations. Can we ignore it? Is it, like you said, it's convenience? What does that mean? (laughs) There are formulations of theories in which time does not explicitly appear. So, you know, one of the big open challenges in physics now is to integrate a theory of gravity that describes the largest objects, the greatest distances, so sort of cosmological distances and scales with the quantum scale, with a quantum description of gravity. Mm. We don't quite yet have that, but one attempt to have that is the Wheeler-DeWitt equation that tries to integrate and come up with a quantum theory of gravity. And in that equation, surprisingly, time really does not feature explicitly. I mean, I'm a biologist. That's my training. And time, it's all focused on change over time. It's evolution. It's sort of a key component in this entire field. And in your field, it's almost like an add-on if you need it. It's hard to rectify that discrepancy. Time is very important as a variable in terms of understanding the physical universe and changes to properties of objects and systems. 
The question is really, is it a fundamental feature of nature or is this something that we have defined for our convenience? And I tend to believe that there's a lot that has to do with who we are as biological creatures and the compulsions that we have for time. Having said that, we do know that time has an arrow as a direction and it always moves forward. And that is deeply tied to the second law of thermodynamics and the fact that all systems evolve in one direction towards the direction in which entropy increases. By sort of convention, if you will, what our intent is in when we try to understand physical systems, we cannot escape the fact that time has an arrow. And that clearly seems to be deeply related to the second law of thermodynamics. One of the things that's talked about in astrophysics is this idea of space-time. I've never really understood what that means. Space and time are the same? <laughs> is, that the, is that right? Space, space and time are on equal footing. I wouldn't say that they are the same. Like they can actually swap places. And, you know, it really does come out of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Einstein is able to relate and explain what gravity is in terms of the shape of space and the impact of matter on the shape of space. And that's when he realizes that the shape of space is not just the three-dimensional space. Uh, space, but that time is involved. And so he comes, he invents this four-dimensional quantity called space-time. Even though the speed of light, sort of the cosmic speed limit is 186,000 miles per second, it's still slow compared to cosmic distances. And therefore, you need to specify the time at which this event happened. In a way, sort of mixing time and space permitted Einstein to specify very, very clearly on cosmic scales when and where an event occurs. Because you kind of need to specify when it happened because it takes light, finite amount of time to reach us from, say, A and from B. So we need to know the time at which the event occurred to actually pinpoint the event. How do you go about studying this? Well, you know, so a lot of the work that I do uh, involves looking at data from the very high redshift universe. And so one of the curious things about the universe is when you're looking out into the night sky, you're actually looking back in time. So you're looking things like they were when light left it. So many of the galaxies that I'm looking at when I'm trying to map dark matter and I'm trying to see the distortions in shape that have been produced by lumps of dark matter that are sitting in front of them by light bending. So, you know, it takes millions and sometimes billions of years for light to travel from those objects to hit our telescope lenses. Mm. If you go out into the night sky, point your telescope, and you pick up one of these faint galaxies that say billions of years, light years away, you have no idea what it looks like today. All the stars could have dimmed and it could have died. What we are seeing is what it looked like several billion years ago. In many ways, you know, our telescopes are offering us kind of a time machine. So when you're late for a meeting, do you ever just give them the excuse that time is, is relative? Uh, alas, it doesn't work. I mean, I resort <laughs> to a different one, which is like, my watch must have stopped or must have, you know, slowed down or whatever, right? Well, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Well, great. It's a, it was a real pleasure. Priya Vadanatarajan is a professor at Yale. Next time I'm late for a meeting, I'm using that. I'm not late. Time is but an illusion. 
If you are late, but you still need that caffeine hit, thankfully time can literally be money. Our producer, Claire Bonnyman, went to a Tim Hortons at rush hour. Hello, my name is Dave McEachern. I'm the owner of the uh, Tim Hortons here in the Mayo Centre. So we're behind the counter at Tim's, and I think I see one, two, three, four, like there's, there's so many countdowns going on right now. It's one of the uh, skills that our team members have to have. They have to be able to, uh, to anticipate uh, the amount of uh, guests coming in the restaurant. Uh, so to time that with the, the brewing time, and of course all our coffee is 20 minutes fresh. We do have standards like, for instance, in drive through we time things like uh, the amount of time the car is in the entire drive through how much time they spend uh, taking their order. You literally have pictures of cars, and they're red and they're green, and there's like 1 minute 08 on one car. The numbers up top are total time for the car in the drive through and we have targets that go uh, uh, red, uh, yellow, and green, right? Uh, so green, of course, means that you've gotten through uh, the person in uh, the shortest time possible. What we want to make sure is what, that we're doing our uh, our job here in drive through as quickly as we can. So when they arrive at the uh, at the window to pick up their their order, that they're we've got it prepared for them. It's the right order, and we get it out to them as quick as possible. You don't just have hour and minute in terms of time you have you know it's 906 12 a.m. how crucial do you think is timing down to the second when you're dealing behind the counter at Tim's you can actually see on our number there our best hour in uh, for amount of transactions that's the amount of cars through our drive-thru was 163 cars in one hour and so when you've got uh, those kind of numbers uh, every second counts Time is most certainly a real thing. My clock stares down on me begging to be more productive. It's a measurable passage of a moment. And yet time is relative. Time can fly when we're having fun, or it can drag on as we sit through yet another endless Zoom meeting. And there's one thing we have all experienced in these last 12 months, how our perception of time can change in an instant. Alison Holman is a professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Nursing and has studied how the pandemic has changed time in an interesting way. We experienced a major change in our lifestyles that forced for many people a a sense that all of a sudden where you were thinking you were going in the future is really not necessarily what's going to happen. We were all like, go home work from home if you can. Students were put into this virtual learning mode. There's a concept that I use in my research called temporal disintegration. For human beings, we have a sense of a past, a sense of a present, and a sense of a future. Our our past helps inform who we are. It's where we've been and what we've done and how we've gotten to where we are today, which is our present. Our present is what we experience in the here and now. But when people wake up in the morning, it's not that they're just in the here and now. They're in the here and now with an intent to do something in a future, whether it be a very short range future, like in five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour, but it could be a longer, I'm finishing my school this quarter, I'm whatever it might be. To have that sense of some kind of a thread from one's past into the present leading into a future is one of the most important underlying core assumptions, beliefs, or experiences that human beings need. 
And what happens in the context of major trauma, major life trauma, is that this sense of the future is often just shut down. You have to live in the moment. You have to live in that moment because there's something threatening right there. And people lose that sense of continuity from past to present to future. And that's not good for your mental health. And the pandemic has been this ambiguous, invisible, nebulous threat. You can't see the virus. It's just lurking out there somewhere. You don't know who's got it or who's going to give it to you. And so it makes all that unknown there, which creates anxiety. But when it also helps to shorten your sense of where's the future going? What's what's the future going to be? It's an unusual form of trauma because it's ongoing. In the context of dealing with that protracted event, having to change our lives dramatically. We also get hit with these, what I call punctuated acute stressors, like the death of a loved one or a severe illness of a loved one, or you've been kicked out of your home because somebody, because you haven't been able to pay rent because you lost your job or you don't have food for your kids or whatever it might be. It's been this endless series of events that has really dramatically shifted people's sense of time. And that's why a lot of people are calling it blurs day, because Mm -hmm. this temporal disintegration is when you just kind of lose the continuity from past, present to future. And you're just kind of living in the moment day to day. And you're not sure is to wait what day is today. Can you think of a time in the history of your work or or whatever, where we face this kind of upheaval in our lives on such a global scale? No, I can't. I absolutely can't. Do we have cascading events? Occasionally, yes, we will. I mean, in California, for example, we could have, you know, a series of wildfires that are just ripping through towns and the economic damage that can be done to them. But it's not quite the same as what this pandemic has been, because the ambiguity, the invisibility, the nebulous nature of how this virus spreads, it's been a very unique experience. How has it in general affected our our view of the future? The hitch for me is I, I can't use the word it has shifted, from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, because I don't know Mm -hmm. where people's sense of time was before the pandemic. Over the six months that we've measured people in, we've seen clear reports of people experiencing that construct of what I'm talking about, the temporal disintegration. People have been experiencing that. It's associated, as I would expect, as I would predict, it is associated with a lot of outcomes, like being worried about the future, like feeling depressed or having post-traumatic stress symptomatology or other issues. We are in the phase of where vaccines are going to help us shape our future and and go back or go forwards into something that feels a little bit more normal. Do you have advice for for listeners to say this is how we can move forwards and get back into our temporal perceptions of time that are more accurate, more healthy? I think as people start going back to work and living their lives the way in more of what we would call the quote, I'm doing air quotes, the quote, normal life that we've had, that will help tremendously because people will have both the physical markers of change, of moving from one place to another. So for example, getting up in the morning and 
getting dressed and getting ready to go to work and you actually go someplace different, <laughs> that will definitely help with the, with the time. Because when people have a sense that they're back to what they were doing, that will help them feel like they're rebuilding their future. We talk about this year as, as a lost year. How is that going to impact you know, moving forward? I guess the predictions, your hypotheses, we feel like I didn't have a birthday last year. I'm still, you know, I'm still 41. I'm not turning 42. I'm going to, it's just, everything's been put on hold. Life has been put on hold for many, many millions and millions and billions of people. As the vaccinations roll out and people start having a sense that, oh, maybe I can actually be safe if I go out people will start to feel a greater sense of security of interacting in the world again. You know, there's a possibility that people are going to be struggling a little bit with how they interact with other people because we've not been interacting with a lot of other people in the same way that we were previously, right? To the degree that we are able to reconstruct a life for ourselves that feels closer to what we consider our normal, the better it will be for our sense of time because it'll help us recreate that continuity and the better it will be for our mental health. With that, Alison, our time is up. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, bye-bye. Alison Holman is a professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Nursing. Imagine what you could do with an extra hour a day. Read a book with your kids, take dancing lessons, learn Spanish. I'm going to introduce you to two scientists who know how valuable time is. Sanford DeVoe is a professor at UCLA. His research looked for the answer to this question. What's your time worth? My other guest is Celine Malkoch. She studies the impact of time as a behavioral scientist at the Fisher School of Business at The Ohio State University. So how important is time in our world? It's fair to say that it's very important because it is the one resource that we have is, is limited. We have 24 hours a day. We cannot borrow it. We cannot lend it. We cannot save it. So to the extent that it is the resource that allows us to achieve our goals, like, you know, working and enjoying ourselves and doing our hobbies, spending time with our kids and family, it is probably the most important resource we have in our lives. If time is a resource, then how do you know if the time you've spent on something is successful? This is how Celine Malkoch sees it. There's a lot of disagreement in some ways. If you were trying to enjoy your time, we try to measure it by enjoyment. If you're trying to actually use a productivity, we measure it by what you choose to do or how fast you do things or how good the outcome is once you complete the task. The reality is our lives are driven by our goals. We have a goal to have fun. We have a goal to enjoy our family. We have a goal to find meaning in our lives. If the goal is to find meaning, we have to go through time and understand that we are using our time to achieve every single one of those goals. So what is our time worth? That's where the research of Sanford DeVoe and his group comes in. It turns out the worth of our time depends on our job. So, uh, you know, we did a study where we uh, had participants uh, listen to a beautiful piece of music. You know, they were told, hey, you know, we want you to take a break from this survey and, and wipe the slate clean. Uh, half the participants were sort of listed, you know, what, what's your income? What's the number of hours that you work? And then the other half were asked to do a calculation and come up with the, with the hourly wage rate for their time. And the ones that did the calculation 
weren't able to enjoy the music at the same level as the people who didn't do that calculation. That was some evidence that, you know, if you're thinking about the monetary value of your time, it makes it harder for you to be in the present and enjoy a, a beautiful piece of music. I, I will say one caveat, we ran a, another study where we explicitly paid people a very high amount per second to listen to that same piece of music. And doing that calculation then has the opposite effect. So suddenly, if you're thinking about your time in terms of money, and someone's going to pay you to listen to a beautiful piece of music, well, you actually are poised to enjoy that music even more. You're earning money and you're enjoying yourself. It's really when uh, the monetary value of time makes you think about, oh, I, I could be earning more doing something else than I currently am. It, it really gets in the way of being able to smell the roses. Just what I thought. Money makes people happier. I mean, I'm kidding. Sort of. It does remind me of this ad campaign. Two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. Celine Malkoch believes happiness is more than money. Happiness is shown in the way we use our time. Time is this one resource that is like duly purposed. The way that we use it also reflects who we are. Many works, not mine, have linked the time with utilize our time to how happy we are. For instance, people who choose to volunteer their time are happier than those who actually use it for themselves. People who spend their time with others are happier than those who spend it solitarily. People who engage in activities they define to be meaningful are happier than those who actually engage in tasks that were not intrinsically meaningful to them. So there's a lot of findings out there that shows that time consumption is related to well-being and happiness. Sanford DeVoe? Uh, when you look at detailed time diaries about how people spend their time, you're, you're much less likely to uh, engage in volunteer work. So this is work that you don't get paid for. And it's very hard to justify undertaking that type of activity if you're thinking about the monetary value of your time. Happiness or earning potential, it seems like a vicious circle. Now I wonder what I should do if I find myself with an extra hour in a day. Should I use it for earning potential or nurturing happiness? When we gain that hour, something gets canceled. The first thing we all do is to ask ourselves, what am I going to do with this time? And once you ask that question, as human beings, we have a need to actually fill it up with something. And all of us have our running list of to-dos, whether if it's written or not. And we literally mentally go to that list and pick up a few that's top of mind and go on with our lives. However, we do not have the equivalent want-to-do list, if you will. It's not like we have written down, oh, I'm going to grab a latte. I'm going to actually roast some marshmallows. So because the other list of fun things to do that are little, that could be squeezed in life, is missing we have to go to the chore list that we have. And as an outcome, the little enjoyments in life get squeezed out to a large extent. If leisure tasks are scheduled, have strict beginning and end times, so I'm going to roast some marshmallows at 4 p.m. today, that is a bad idea. We find that every time leisure is scheduled, that chips away from its enjoyment. Mm. We might be more likely to engage in that leisurely activity, but we report enjoying it less. Having said that, planning for something, being ready for a leisurely activity is useful, and that seems to allow us to engage in more leisurely activities without that negative downside. I hear you, Celine. I'm not entirely sure how to plan for fun without scheduling it, but I am a work in progress. Sanford DeVoe makes me feel a little bit better about the need to commodify my time. 
it can be critical to understand the monetary value of your time when you're making a big purchase about where to live and how long is your commute going to be and, and that sort of stuff, or, or whether to take direct flights or get the cheaper ticket with a layover. But what I think you, you really want to avoid is constantly thinking about this. So that if you are with your, uh, your son at uh, their soccer game, enjoy that moment. You shouldn't let uh, the monetary value of your time get in the way of, of your actual enjoyment of leisure activities, because that's one of the primary reasons that we work is in order to have that special leisure time. Try to be mindful about it. I feel like I can give nine different advice as to how to best utilize your time. But the reality is being mindful of it and understanding the traps that's waiting for us in terms of the little unintended decisions we can make that can actually cause us either not to be productive or not to enjoy ourselves is the best way to go. I think I have it. Your time is precious. So take Celine Malkoch's advice and have some fun, but compartmentalize. Have an earning brain that allows you to commodify your time and learn how to shut that off. Like Sanford DeVos says, you can live in the moment and smell the roses and listen to that beautiful music and chill. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team is... James Evans. Christina Silva. And special thanks to Tora Couture, Leslie Goldstone, and Corey Haberstock for letting us play some of their feature show, It's About Time. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. Thank you for your time today, because there is always so much more to know. You can get into the loop with us every Friday here. You can also leave us a rating or a review. We have an email, theloop at cbc.ca. You can also use the hashtag theloopcbc to reach us on social media. Subscribe or download the show on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.